when shall we four meet again? In thunder, lightning, or rain? When the episode's done, when our reading is again won. Oh, uh, uh, I can do next Tuesday. Is Tuesday okay? I'm running a game next Tuesday. What about Wednesday? I'm taking my cat to the vet Wednesday. Oh, um, Wednesday's no good. I've, I've got a thing I've got to do. Well, if we miss the next full moon, we're going to have to put off recording for a full month. Aaron, you know we don't actually have to record under a full moon. It's the aesthetic of the thing. We have to respect that. Aesthetic? <clears throat> sorry. <laughs> aesthetic. I lost it. I'm sorry. I broke. <laughs> aesthetic? Don't we have a book to talk about anyways? You're right. Discworld now. Schedule later. Through the fathomless depths of space swims the star turtle, the great Atuan. And on its back are four nerds trying to figure out just what it is that makes Sir Terry Pratchett's work both timely and timeless. So grab your copy of the Scottish play, make sure you touch up your humble apple seller disguise, and join us on our journey through Weird Sisters and the complete discography. Tonight we're recording uh, about the Terry Project novel Weird Sisters, Ooh. the sixth book in the Discworld uh, series, uh, first published in 1988 um, wow. by Victor Glantz Limited and associated with Colin Smith Limited. This book is as old as I am. I'm not going to comment on that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think we had a discussion about this last episode. Yeah. I think we yeah, did. These books are still older than me. <laughs> the, the wonders, the wonders of recording once a month is that we uh, reuse all the same jokes, listeners. And us only releasing once a month means you probably will forget them too. Yay! <laughs> Content. I'm Anna, and I'm currently completing a doctorate in theoretical witchcraft. I am Minna, a poor player who struts and frets her hour upon the disc, with a Y. I am Justin, a ghost with. Issues adjusting to the undeath. And I am Aaron, statistically speaking, a descendant of Nanny Og. So in Weird Sisters, we jump back to the Ramtops and we reunite ourselves with Granny Weatherwax. Plus, we meet an ensemble of charming new characters who do a nice job of rounding her out. We've already seen Granny in Equal Rights, but it's Weird Sisters that's truly the start of the witch's arc um, of the Discworld books. Um, because we don't just meet granny again we get uh nanny og and megrat garlic so in weird sisters we open on a dark and stormy night in lanker where granny weatherwax is joined by the jovial and earthy nanny og and the somewhat t- timid and bookish magrat uh magrat garlic in a meeting of their coven of witches the book itself st- starts out with a solid gag of when shall we three meet again followed by discussion of scheduling conflicts that would make any RPG group proud. Uh, Zooming out over the country, though, we find that dark deeds are afoot that night, even if the witches are just discussing, you know, having to babysit. 
death has come for the king, Varence, who has just been murdered by his cousin, the Duke Felmet. But after checking his notes, death realizes that Varence is not, in fact, meant to move on at this time. His destiny is to become a ghost and haunt the castle. Returning to the witches, they're approached by a coach, which is in turn chased by a group of soldiers. And the dying coachman presses a bundle into Granny's arms. Some headology sees the soldiers on their way. And the bundle's contents are revealed to be Varence's son and his crown. A little bit later, over some tea and perhaps something a little bit stronger, the witches discuss what it is, what is to be done with the child. Clearly, he's in danger, uh, see the soldiers. But the witches are sworn not to meddle in politics. Finally, they come to a decision. There's a group of traveling players in town, and the witches will go to see them and find out whether they would make a suitable home for the boy. Meanwhile, back at the castle, things are not going well. The ghost of Varence is growing increasingly miserable as he realizes that the pleasures of the flesh require, well, flesh. He sets about the task of training himself, uh, you know, pumping his ectoplasmic iron to manipulate the world around him, doing things like picking up items, closing doors, and oversalting the Duke's porridge. The Duke himself, goaded by his formidable and terrifying wife, the Duchess, is beginning to show some signs of madness. Uh, he obsesses over the murder, he obsesses over the threat of the witches, and his hatred of the forests surrounding the castle. He finds a new advisor and confidant in the court fool, uh, who, in the fine tradition of all literary fools, is far wiser and more intelligent than he appears. The witches go to see the play and then meet up with the troop leader, Vitoler, in the pub. They find him and his wife to be decent sorts and convince them to adopt the baby, who was accidentally named Tom John. As they're headed out of the country, this the, the, the players are headed out of the country, so this not only protects the child, but it takes care of the crown itself, which Granny, Granny has discovered has a certain headology of its own, and Magrat has hidden in the player's props box. After returning to Magrat's co cottage, the three witches discuss the tradition of bestowing gifts upon the baby. However, an argument ensues, and they cannot decide on what they should gift. So the three decide to give their gifts in private on their own. Magrat gives the baby the ability to make friends easily. Nanny gives him a superb memory. After, after contemplating giving him what is implied to be a formidable piece of anatomy... Uh, and Granny tells him to be whoever he thinks he is. So as time passes, things are not going well for the kingdom. Felmet's hand on the country is cruel. He raises taxes and, much to their displeasure, attempts to tax the witches. He burns cottages and he simply hates the country. And since this is the Discworld and things are often more literal than they seem, the land itself begins to chafe at being unloved by its ruler. On Hogswatch night, 
It sends a message to the witches, and it rattles and shakes the castle itself. Felmitz decides that the fool... Uh, he, he demands that the fool find a solution to the witches, who the duke believes are shaking the castle. The witches, meanwhile, are still vowing to not meddle in the political affairs, even, even when the land asks them for aid. And looking in on Tom John, we find that he, he's being well cared for by Vitoler and the troop. And he's actually shaping up to be a theatrical prodigy, possibly due to the gifts of the three witches. His first words were indeed not so much spoken as declaimed. And at this point, our various plot threads begin to come together. The fool and Magrat meet in a meadow and are instantly and awkwardly smitten with each other. The ghost of Varence manages to trap Nanny's, Nanny's cat Grebo in a closet forcing a confrontation between the witches and the duke and duchess when nanny goes to the castle to rescue the trapped cat and the other witches go to the castle to rescue the trapped nanny when asked by the duke to devise a method of spreading rumors about the witches and changing popular opinion to be to the duke's favor the fool brings up the power of words and suggests that they commission a play to tell the story of how the evil king definitely died accidentally by tripping down the stairs onto his own dagger, and how and of how witches are very bad indeed. Faced with the sickening kingdom and the dukes and duchesses' evil, Granny finally decides to intervene and decides that, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound, right? So, in an epic feat of spellwork, aeronautical prowess, and mid-flight broomstick refueling, the witches manage to unstick Lanker in time and push it 15 years into the future. A future in which, of course, Tom John is all grown up, and currently in Ankhmore Pork, where Vitoler has decided to construct a theater, The Disc. He and the dwarf playwright Huel run into The Fool, who has come into the city to commission a play and hire actors. Since the whole construction enterprise has put Vitola rather badly into debt, um, it's decided that Huel will write the play and that he and Tom John, along with a gaggle of apprentice players, will travel to Lanker and perform it for the Duke and the country. The witches watching Tom John on his travels from a crystal bar are then confident that he is definitely returning as a result of their summons and is definitely coming to take hold of his destiny and claim the throne. Finally, the players arrive in Lanker, aided by last mile navigation guidance on the part of the witches, and the night of the play arrives. The witches are, of course, in attendance, Magret having been given the details by the fool. Uh... Mayhem descends, including forgotten lines, missing props, and the three actors playing the witches being arrested as, well, witches. However, the play must go on, and who better to play the witches than themselves? Once on stage, they use magic to alter the lines, and the actors begin telling the truth, telling the crowd the truth of Varence's murder. The Duke and Duchess attempt to silence the players, but are interrupted by the fool, who confirms the details. The Duke runs away, eventually to fall into Lanker Gorge. And the Duchess is locked up and Tom John, the Duchess of the, the Duchess is locked up and Tom John is offered the crown but abdicates, saying that he does not want to be king. 
However, Magrat has noticed the similarity in appearance between the Fool and Tom John, and has learned that the Fool's real name is Varence, and brings him forward as Tom John's elder half-brother and Lanker's new king. With this, the kingdom begins to return to normal. The Fool, now king, begins to very awkwardly court Magrat, and only we and the witches know that while the king and Tom John are indeed half-brothers, their, fa- their father was not Varence, but instead the former fool. How's that for headology? And that's it. So yeah, we've got a big cast of characters for this book. Any points that any of you would like to clarify from that? Well, not only did the, the witches take uh, roles, but also Death took his own role. Yes, my my good, good boy took on himself. There's a lot going on in this book. Yeah. So we've got the, the coven. Uh, we've got the fool. We've got the duke and duchess. We've got the acting troupe. We've got Grebo. Don't forget Grebo. Who could forget Grebo? Certainly nobody who's ever smelled him could forget Grebo. Or been on the receiving end of his attentions. We have our our very good boy, Huel, the playwright. Yeah, and we, we will definitely dive into him later. Is Huel our first, like, big dwarf character in the series? Yep. I think so, yeah. yeah. It's funny that it's like a non-traditional dwarf, too. Yeah. Terry really loved non-traditional dwarves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Wait, can we just... We're going to have to touch on that. And again, and again, and again. <laughs> yeah. He really, he really liked non-traditional people. Yeah. I mean, why write a book about somebody who's traditional? True. Although the, I think that, you know, the fascinating thing that he does with this, cause like we, we do, we define this as not a lore book, but it is also very much a lore book because he established a lot of things about witching in this book. But it's like also a lore book that's good. Yeah. I think yeah. the reason that witch lore is good is because witch lore is inextricably tied to the world and the community that the witches live in, whereas wizard yeah. lore is all about being separate, which is That is a hundred percent fucking accurate. boring. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's also like in the Discworld community this is sort of widely accepted as like the first witch book. I think that's accurate, yeah. I think in this case you're getting a lot of like all the lore we're getting is sort of diegetic to the narrative. Yeah. And it, you never feel like it's being set up for something later. Like you never feel like, like I, I think we can, I think that there's maybe some stuff that like is in like say color of magic that feels like it's sort of teeing up for light. Fantastic. Mm hmm. And there's nothing that really feels like that, where it's like, this doesn't really come up much here in the book itself. It feels like it was just put in there to establish something. Yeah, it definitely is. I feel like it's the Chekhov's gun of lore. You know, everything that's there is used. Yeah, and and also lampshaded and like and tweaked. He, the the thing that I keep 
banging on about in all of these recordings is like how he takes something and pries it apart and says, oh, okay, so this works this way and this works that way. What if we do it differently? So like the two traditional witches versus McGrath's um, uh, research witchery is an example of prying the way he was in medias res or that's not the right word, but like diegetically doing that. You know, also, is Nanny even a traditional witch? None of them are. Yeah. Because I think he's saying, no, there is no traditional witch aside from what is the core of witching, which is doing good for people. Yeah, I like that like they each not. have a different, they have a different, each of a different way of being a witch, even while kind of holding to the vague template of being the weird woman in the community. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's, it's actually an interesting play on the like maiden mother crone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's specifically that mother and grandmother and great grandmother. I did. I, something that I really liked was that like, also there was a lot of discussions about like sort of the expectations and like performative witchery. Mm hmm. Like, especially in mm -hmm. Magrat, who she's like, oh, hey, but I thought witches did this, or aren't witches supposed to do this? And a, a lot uh, and a lot of it is, like, it seems like, you know, Granny and Nanny both are like, we've been doing this shit for too long to, like, no, we just want to make sure people are witches. We don't really care. You know, we don't, we don't have any use for these specific traditions beyond, like, making sure that people think we're witches. Because that isn't really important. So let's step back for a second and talk briefly about uh, generally what the impressions were uh, from our new readers versus um, Anna and me. Had, you hadn't read this yet, Minna, right? I had not, no. This book was so good. Uh, I mean, first thought, this guy really gets it about Shakespearean drama. Uh, also, this book even more than equal rights made me understand why people love the witches so much. Like I had to keep stopping in the middle of the book and like talk to Twitter friends who like, who really like granny Weatherwax and be like, I understand. Also this makes so much sense. <laughs> and the, all the, just all the witch magic is I'm super into it. I really like it. Big heart. Same. I, th this, this book, this book slaps. <laughs> like, <laughs> Like, I, I think it's, like, and I think Terry does a really good job. Like, I, I, I want to bring this up because it's, like, it's I love it as, like, a character thing of, like, Granny Weatherwax is, I don't want to say an antagonist, but a complicating factor for equal rights. Uh, like, for, for the protagonist equal rights of just, like, like, she's there to enable Esk, but, like, at the start she is very much sort of, like, a... Confl not conflicted, but like a very a a teaching figure, but also sort of like there's there's a combative nature between the two of them. Um, she, she's sort of kind of she's kind of part of the problem. Yes, and like keeping that exact same character because I don't think there's a huge change in her character really between this book and Equal Rights, but changing her role in the story. To be like, she is one of the main protagonists, and she is also the, like, and changing her from like this, you know, 
system, like, a teacher who is part of sort of the system to, like, a protagonist who has all of her big, ugly flaws from equal rights, but but still is, like, a protagonist who you can now root for. And I think that's a fun change. Like, and I don't, and I, I think that's very hard to pull off. Um, as well as that, like, our three witches are all protagonists who, like, you want to root for and are interesting characters, but are also, like, I don't want to say not great people, but very flawed people. They're so much more interesting than Rincewind. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's brilliant how there's, like, because there's three of them, they can have, like, all their flaws kind of bounce off of each other and show different ways of being a witch without it being like, we have to rely on this one figure who is the witch. <laughs> yeah, that, that was so good. Like, like they're, they're a group of relative equals who all have their own flaws. And it's, that, that Although is... Granny is first among equals. Yeah. Um, That's just because she's so fucking stubborn. This book is also about theater. And honestly, like, you have to work really hard for me not to love a book that is primarily about the theater and, like, the power of words. Because I have a weak hoe for that. Same. Um, yeah, this is, like, this is, like... <laughs> this is um, the Justin the Minna bait book. Yeah, no, this is, like, like, <laughs> like, this is the book that was, like, Terry, Terry, like, went back... Formula like flung around a time, just so he could like say, "I know you had a rough time with sorcery, Justin." You're <laughs> getting you're getting the book that is going to like that is going to just get you in the clear here. So yeah, I I remember liking this book when I read it. I don't think I read it for several years just because it I I lost the paperback or something like that. I didn't remember all of the good good bits in it and i i really like this book same solid pacing solid pacing this book is this book is like there's so much going on there's a ton going on we got like the witch's plot line the duke plot line the ghost plot line the fool timeline the tom john plot line they they each have these own like little threads that are just brought together seamlessly without any hiccups. Um, like, if if you like, it's where the book blurb thing of like, you know, a real page turner, the fun never stops. Um, but honestly, it's true here that that it manages to bounce back and forth between all of these different things going on without it feeling scattered and without any individual facet kind of running on too long and then everything comes together into like you know a big bang at the end and it's just really fun really engaging i i didn't kind of like pick it up and sit it all sit and read it all in one go the way that i might have if i wasn't say like moving house at the same time as reading it but you know if i hadn't had a ton of other stuff going on in my life i definitely would have just like sat down and read it Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's actually I think one I mean I don't have these figures in front of me but it feels like one of the longer books. Uh it's almost 300 pages at least in my edition. You, um I did I notice like it was quite halfway, long. Yeah, I got like halfway through it and I was like 
wow, a lot has happened. I remember how this ends. What happens between here and there? And uh, and then it just like kept going, you know. But it wasn't it wasn't dragging. Like it was pulling me forward. Yeah, I I read yeah. via mostly via the audiobooks. Honestly, I've given up on only doing ebooks. Uh, and I got through like a solid chunk, and then I was like, "Wait, there's still eleven hours left!" Like I was probably like a quarter of the way through, and I was like, "How? That's not the uh, time I'm used to putting into these." Yeah, the I remember I was reading this. And I got through to the point where the witches escaped the castle after rescuing Nanny from the dungeon. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, this is like, just because of like the way that the story was pacing and stuff, I'm like, wow, um, this is feeling like, this is, I'm wondering how they're going to wrap this up. This is, this is feeling close to the end. And I'm like, it's 45%. And I I'm had like, the exact <laughs> same, exact same spot. I had that same thought where that's, I'm like, this feels like a climax. Wait. We're at the halfway point. What? What happens next? It escalates so hard there. The torture room scene, I think, is one of my favorites. Where Nanny, where Nanny's just dragging the torturer. I don't even think on purpose. Such a Nanny thing to do. Yeah, this comes up a lot, so I think it's not something that's unique to this book. I think it's something that Terry does a lot with in really all of his books but you know the the theme of identity and like you know who are you really at your core um that came up here to a large extent you know tom john is secure in his identity as an actor and and you know knows who he is and that he's good at that and rejects the crown when it's offered um magret is kind of harried by both nanny and granny for having a a different approach to witchiness but she sticks to it and she is who she is and she's not apologizing for that and she's good at it yeah i mean she does some major works yeah she's she's not apologizing for who she is and how she approaches her craft um and on you know as our kind of third young person we've got the fool who i mean ends up as a king but he's he grapples with his identity as a fool because he really hates his profession and honestly has quite a bit of trauma from his training. So for me, I did actually have a solid thought on the theme, on the main theme. And it's that thing that we've had brought up and that I've gotten excited about before in other Discworld books, but it's the center of this one for me. It's that thing where history is what you make it. It's a story that we're telling ourselves even as it's happening. And in Discworld, that's, like, completely literal. Like, the whole conflict of this book is about all these characters fighting over what's the story that's going to be told, what is going to be true from this point onwards. Like, both actually true and, like, this is is what's going to be said later. Like, there's this quote... When the fool is coming up with the, well, kind of selling the Duke and the Duchess on the plan to, like, hire a playwright uh, to talk about what happened with murdering the past king. Uh, and he's, and so we've got, you tell me history is what people are told, said the Duchess. The fool looked around the throne room and found King Grunberry the Good, 906 to 967. Was he? He said, pointing. Who knows now? What was he good at? 
but he will be Groomberry the Good until the end of the world. And that's entirely the reason why this book happens the way it does and the reason I think why theater is so central to it. Yeah, you're definitely right on that. Yeah, that definitely it definitely works. I, I I didn't feel like there was any strong one, but I'm gonna go along with that of like that that does that that is a big part of this book. I think uh, you know the, sort of a, a, a B theme uh, that is interesting comparing it to sorcery, which came right before this, is this idea of Terry being like, "Hey, remember those magicians and wizards and stuff? They're kind of assholes." <laughs> and like specifically yeah, the, the saying witches are jerks too right the, the old magic users are jerks apparently um and that's why they don't rule see that's actually not what i got for me it was well i guess because but i think in general it's not necessarily they don't rule the world because they're jerks and then that, that would be a bad idea it's that they have too much power. If they used that power to rule, there would be no stopping them. So it, I, I think this book really gets into like, Terry actually talks a lot about like power and like the right ways to use it. And like, even if it's, you know, a good thing to use it, which is something that Granny struggles with throughout the book. Um, and it's funny because I'm kind of used to that from the watch books I've read, I think. Like, the way that Sam interacts with power. But I just think it's really interesting to see Granny's journey being about that as well. So, McGrattan uses on this on page 145 of my book. Um, it was probably some wonderful organization on the part of nature to protect itself. It saw to it that everyone mm -hmm. with any magical talent was about as ready to cooperate as a she-bear with a toothache, so that all that dangerous power was safely dissipated as random bickering and rivalry. There were differences yeah, we in saw style, the, of course. <laughs> we saw the uh, we saw the logical outcome of that in sorcery, and it sucked. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Even when they help other people, she thought they're secretly doing it for themselves. I think that that's you. Know, we we see a little bit like of the second thoughts. I think that yes. it's not always necessarily selfishness, but I think it's that that sort of ability to take a step back from the situation that's not necessarily a selfish thing, but it's something that I think distances the witches um, from, from other people that they can kind of actually get that piece of emotional distance and look critically with their second thoughts and, Think about what's actually going on here. Was that was that in was that in Equal Rights? Or is this the first appearance of Second Thoughts? I don't think they're called Second Thoughts in this. I haven't seen them called that that I remember. Okay. This becomes exceedingly but, important in the Tiffany Aching series. I think they're described here, but they aren't given that name. Okay. I my other yeah, my other theme besides the power thing for this was like that witches their real power is in seeing like the truth underneath the paint uh so they can look at things they can step back and look at things and see them for what they really are and then they can just say 
actually, I'm going to believe that it's this instead. And that's actually where their power derives from. Like, a really clear example of this in Weird Sisters is Granny Weatherwax. When they're summoning the demon and they use whatever implements they want and imbue them with whatever power they want. But then, like, the demon is like, that's not a sword. And she looks at this copper stick she's holding. And then she looks at this sawhorse and she hits it with the copper stick. And it falls to pieces like it was hit with a sword. Yeah. And, and the, you know, I think that's the interesting comparison too between the granny and nanny's magic versus, uh, how Magrat is doing it with, you know, like it's kind of reminiscent of the, the thing with the, the right of Ash Kent, uh, with the newer wizards saying, well, you know, we can just use three cc's of mouse blood instead of, you know, opening a vein or whatever. Um, but like the, the thing with the witches is that it doesn't, the method doesn't matter as long as the intent is there. It's almost a weird reversal. Yeah. I think McGraw is learning that too, though. Like, yeah, definitely. it's just that she hasn't come on as far in her journey as a witch because, uh, somebody, either nanny or granny tells McGraw next. I think it's nanny. Next time you look at the fool, look at him, not as a woman would look at him, but as a witch would look at him. And, she does, and she sees, oh, he is not the image he's putting forward. These are the things that are actually true about him that he's hiding through these ways. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a really interesting distinction is that you see past, like, the image people are putting forward to what's actually underneath. And that's where a witch's power is. Yeah. Kind of seeing the truth behind the curtain. And on Justin's point, like the, the scene where she puts on the crown, where Granny puts on the crown, I mean, that is fascinating to me. Oh, that's so good. It's almost like the, it's almost like the Galadriel tempted by the ring yes, moment. Yes, exactly. That's what I was struggling to pull up. Honestly, for me, it was big Arch Chancellor hat vibes. I think that like, once you get a symbol of power that has enough time of power imbued in it that that thing becomes alive and begins to have an agenda in Discworld and that's really interesting as a thing that I imagine we're going to keep seeing oh yeah <laughs> I just going I'm, off of like crowns and the like I do think there's an interesting thing that is brought up by of all people the Duke uh uh, film it uh, in one of the in, in like it's ha- it's brought up I think the first time in the castle scene um, where film it suggests like what are you gonna do magic me out of my magic me out of my crown and he gives the 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 thing of basically it's like that if you are going to unseat or offers the the I think it's a good like narrative thing that happens in this book but it's also a like interesting thing to think about is like if the witches had just like used magic to completely get him out of his crown just like did something to remove him the person they put up there would be constantly just looking to them instead of being a rightful ruler they'd be the witch's ruler and now magic is heavily involved in the duke's downfall uh but it becomes that whole uh, hubris thing in the end. Yeah. Th- their magic is legally distinct from putting somebody on the throne. 
Yeah, which I, which I think is interesting because it's like it, it it is the it does like this does ring true of like who a whoever puts a king on the throne will forever have the like have like the puppet strings. Yeah, I wasn't laughing at you. Sorry, I suddenly remembered that bit from Monty Python and the Holy Grail about women and pawns handing out swords is a terrible way. Of- <laughs> but yeah i think it's interesting that the witches didn't necessarily put the fool in power so much as they nudged things around until it became inevitable they got the players on the stage Mm -hmm. (laughs) and gave them some new lines they didn't write the script though the script wrote itself yeah and pointed out that they may have Similar heritage. Well, witches point out the things they see. Yep. Uh, I did want to point out with the thing that I said about witches seeing the truth is that I don't think that even though Lady Felmont thinks she sees the truth, I don't think she does. I think she sees what a cynic thinks is the truth. That it's okay to be awful because everyone else is also awful, but I don't think that she's correct, and I think that's where she fails a bit. So let's talk about let's talk about some theater. And uh, Terry Pratchett's like, I don't know, I'm gonna say his ghost sub tweet for this book is, "Hi, I'm Terry Pratchett. Would you like your healthy dose of an author pontificating about the power of theater, words, and stories, but 100% more wholesome and heartwarming than that last episode of Game of Thrones? Um, <laughs> the, the, like, I think that, like, like, I don't think, like, any writer, like, given the chance, will, like, yes, stories can change the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and words, are, words have power of their own. But I think it, like, it actually, like... The story is about that, and that it's not just a thing a character says, but it's something shown. Um, mm-hmm. And that 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 is like I'm I'm that is catnip for me. Um, but it's also like we we get some we get some fun stuff with that. There are so many so many Shakespeare references in this oh book. My God, so um, <laughs> Aaron found a link so that just has like various oh Shakespeare references that is com- that is uh, compiled by the L Space Wiki, I believe. Yeah, um, uh, we should put that in the show notes because there's it's every reference so in the book. That not just Shakespeare. Like, it's, oh yeah, it's almost as long as the book itself at this yeah. point. Um, and it and is done yeah. diegetically too, like because well. Uh, we previously in the previous book we talked about how inspiration in in Terry's universe is uh, both a particle and a wave, um, and Well is established as a like inspiration lightning rod, and he's tuned to I guess the round world because uh, at mm-hmm. at certain points throughout the book he pulls in things like Marx Brothers, Laurel and Hardy, Charlie Chaplin. Um, the Henry V St. Christmas Day speech twice, all of Shakespeare, mm-hmm. Waiting for Godot, Phantom of the Opera, Importance of Being Earnest. There's probably more. I was yeah. like excitedly writing things down, just like completely annotating one scene. I'm like, this is pointless, but it's fun. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> there some is Tempest a reference stuff. that I found. Um, hold on, let me find it. Let me find it. 
uh, that oh, well is this the one I think it is is talking about um, <clears throat> right, let me find the clip the dwarf stuck out his tongue as he piloted the air quill around the ink speckled page he'd found room for the star-crossed lovers the comic grave diggers and the hunchback king it was the cats on the roller skates that were currently getting in trouble. <laughs> Motherfucker, is this a cat's reference? Is this a fucking Andrew Lloyd Webber reference? Yeah. I have to, in the year of our Lord 2020, see a Starlight Express reference in my fantasy novel. Wait, Starlight, Starlight Express? Express and cats. So, Vita, do you know what Starlight Express is? No! Okay. So I know you this know is what a feeling. In me. So, 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 cat. You know what cats is, right? You know how jellicles are freaking weird and. No, I don't fucking know what a jellicle is, and at this point, I'm too afraid to ask. <laughs> it's a cat. It's a special Wait, cat. A jellicle is a cat. I thought it was like an it's award just a show. Cat. So, anyways, Starlight Express is about a child who dreams. He dreams about his trains. And these trains want to fuck. <laughs> and the that, entire that musical is the guy blinking. Trains introducing themselves like cats. It's trains introducing themselves and going in races, so they get to have sex with the sexy cabooses. And this is all done <laughs> on roller skates. Boy, Weber really hit a rut, didn't he? I, I'm sorry, you said rut? This is genius. Also, the fact that there's at least three Andrew Lloyd Webber, Webber references because also Phantom of the Opera. That's Oh, God, Webber. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I know. Uh, Starlight Express is about people on roller skates playing trains who want to fuck. Also, I have, to, I have to interject here saying, boy, if you two are loving the literary references and theater references in this one just fucking wait until we get to the rest of the witches books because this is the tip of the goddamn iceberg this is only the tip of the iceberg because this already (laughs) felt like living in a fruitcake of theater references uh oh yeah i would also like to talk about theater references and why it they're making me feel many things go Go right ahead hi I guess if you are listening to this podcast and you don't know me, you might not know that I helped run a Shakespeare society and just generally in college went down a Shakespeare spiral. Anyway, uh, this does a lot of really cool things with like Shakespeare dramatic convention stuff. Like the thing we're in a tragedy, the world is just completely broken because the social order has been so badly broken that there's no way to get justice uh, without like, there's no right way to get justice. Uh, and then you mix that with Discworld, and you get the actual land literally coming to Granny and being like, please fix this. And then, like, the castle shaking, and, uh, I mean, the ghosts are pretty standard fare, but uh, still very cool. Uh, so that was really interesting uh, to, like, you know, marry this Shakespeare thing, and fuck, I said Mary, and now I'm gonna laugh about it. It's fine. Uh, but to Mary, this, okay, the Shakespeare thing and, and Discworld's like, established stuff, it was real cool. And I'm gonna talk out of my ass for a second because I don't have references on this, but in Shakespeare classes, we did talk about 
how like early modern people did think of the theater as being a thing that could get into your head and literally change your like brain and it being that kind of like almost magical. The way that that is true in this was just like I was living. I love it so much. <laughs> Because, uh, like, the way you could literally, you could see the way, that, especially with the play at the end, you could see the way that just the course of history was changing because of the way they were staging the murder. Very cool. <laughs> I mean, the, the other thing that really sort of the, the most clear and obvious and hammer you on the head Shakespearean reference is aside from the witches, obviously the, the fool and the Shakespearean fool is so critical to many of his plays. But it wasn't a Shakespearean fool. It was it, it very wasn't. much a Discworld fool. He wasn't even slightly a Shakespearean fool because the, the role of the fool in a Shakespeare play is that he tells the truth because nobody else can. He just couches it in humor and it's okay because ha ha ha, it's just a fool. Which the fool really doesn't do. Uh, like his, his thing is even just to like do things by rote and be very, very loyal and not upset the status quo at all. Uh, and he does end up... Except for the words being power speech. Yeah. But even then it was like he was kind of doing that despite his role as the fool. Mm-hmm. Like, it felt like his the role the role that he was written as a fool was very much the way that the way that guilds and discworld work, where it's like you're given a specific role to play and you got to play it to the T. Which yeah, is th- this valid, was the first like but not very Shakespearean. <laughs> this was definitely the to sort of take a side trip from from talking about Shakespeare. Uh, this was, I think, the first time we really saw the guilds fully in what I would consider modern operation. Yeah. Um, we're going to, let's talk about that for a minute here. Cause yep. our, our good friends, the thieves guild. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> and the assassins guild too. Yeah. So I, I yesterday or, or when I, I don't remember earlier this week, when I got to the point where they go to egg Fork, and we got to the, we got to the footnote. I love that this is a fucking footnote that broke me. Um, it's a footnote one. and a footnote within a footnote. Oh no, this one. This one is just one footnote. Is the, like for how the guilds work. Wasn't there a second footnote on that footnote? I might be wrong. I think that might have been it's the fine. one about the calendars with you. Oh yeah, yeah, you're, you're right. Never mind. <laughs> that, that one also broke me in a different way. But that mm-hmm. the. the you know, Ankh-Morpork owns an enviable system of licensed criminals and the system through which all the criminals are licensed and how there are quotas and everything was... Guys, I cannot wait for the fucking guards books. I know! I, it's, it's almost... I need it so, in my veins. So I feel like... I feel like it's actually... I feel like this is almost a weird tie-in with color of magic almost because I feel like Vitinari figured out a way to do insuerance that actually works in Agmorpork. I think that that's what this is. Is that like Vitinari took that concept and was like how do we make this work in this like weird fucked up city? 
I was going to say, let me repeat my remark from when Justin talked about this in the Discworld server, which was, Ankh Morpork is just a Rube Goldberg machine of Lord Vetinari's invention, and you either play your part in it, or you are going to die. That's correct. So who wants to play a Blades of the Dark game that is fucking Ankh Morpork? You just <laughs> spoke my love language. <laughs> So I, I do want to dive back slightly onto the point that um, the point that we were making with the Shakespearean stuff of you know, that the minute you had the point of like that, you know, the words in the play actually change you, mm-hmm. etc. And I remembered one of my favorite little bits with that. Um which is actually that the the dukes the dukes like slander of the witches backfires against him mm-hmm. because you know once it once everything hits the fan um and he tries to get like the soldiers to you know get the witches down from the stage they're like no they're going to turn me into a toad or like eat me or something yes. Like, whereas previously the people of Lanker were just like, you know, witches, they're, they're, they're good folks, you know, like, don't make them angry. You know, they're the midwives, they're the healers. And so the Duke has put so much time and effort into, like, maligning the witches. And it just completely turns on his head as his own soldiers are afraid of them now. Here's the thing. If you want to talk about using perception an expectation as a weapon against a witch, you better be real good or you're going to be outclassed because that's their shit also. Yeah. Like so much of like Granny's headology thing. It's not about what you actually physically do. It's about what people think you can do. Yeah. And and the Duke you know, made everybody think that the witches were bad and did a lot of bad things. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing that that was really funny to me that played off of tropes, I think, was how the witches kept recycling old witch tropes. Um, you know, like there's this there's this repeated invasion of the castle that they do using the humble apple seller bit. And the guards are increasingly just like, I, I guess I have to play along because you're obviously a witch, but like, I don't really want to bother you. Um, and then the humble wood collector thing that they all do with, with well, uh, who knows exactly what's going on and is totally, totally internally genre savvy. I forgot about that. I love Outside of all of the Macbeth Shakespeare stuff that's happening, I really think that the witches know that they're in a fairy tale genre and play off of that a lot. Because you get the woodcutter and the yeah. um the the a- apple seller thing and you get the sleeping beauty thing where they they literally accelerated time because that was what Black Alice did with Sleeping Beauty. And even just like little references, like I think Nanny Og at some point is like, you know, you can't just throw rings into the ocean because next thing you know, you're going to catch a fish and there it is with your dinner. It's, it's, <laughs> I love that they know that they're in a fairy tale and they structure their stuff around that. Yeah, and and the 
the giving the gifts to the baby as well. Yes. They know their genre and they use that. <laughs> also, I I really loved well, that. Well, because they're doing the Sleeping Beauty thing. <coughs> and oh, this yeah, might, no, no, this no, might not make it into the yes. podcast, but I really loved that Granny had to convince Nanny not to bestow upon that baby a giant cock. I'm not I'm not wrong. <laughs> Nanny, mm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Nanny is very connected with biology. Yeah, no, you're a hundred percent not wrong. I, I just, I just had a realization about why I love the witches books so much and why they're so much my shit, and it's because I, I, uh, really just live comfortably in like the fairy tale retelling zone. Uh, so. They remind me of Robin McKinley, and they remind me also in this one a lot of Howl's Moving Castle, where they're, you know, bouncing off of fairy tale tropes and also extremely grumpy older witch who just causes chaos everywhere. I may have yelled on Twitter about uh, needing Granny Weatherwax to meet Howl and Sophie from Howl's Moving Castle, because that would be chaos. And I would love it. The other thing that I really liked was their varying commitments to the bit. Like, uh, McGrath really sells. Like, she sells hard. Granny's just like, yeah, whatever, do the thing. And and, and Nanny's like, hey, got any beer? <laughs> McGrath still believes in the fairy tale part. I think that must be the training wheels for witches. Like, until you figure out how to actually do your role, you use the stock fairy tales. So do we want to talk about the kind of you know, button moment here? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think that Minna, was, I was struggling to find uh, a good solid one that felt earned, but um, I think Minna pulled a good one. I read this quote and I literally highlighted and said, this is the button, <laughs> which I never do. Uh There was something here, he thought, that nearly belonged to the gods. Humans had built a world inside the world which reflected it in pretty much the same way as a drop of water reflects the landscape. And yet, and yet, inside this little world they had taken pains to put all the things you might think they would want to escape from. Hatred, fear, tyranny, and so forth. Death was intrigued. They thought they wanted to be taken out of themselves, and every art humans dreamt up took them further in. He was fascinated. Which is just exactly what we've been saying about Discworld the entire goddamn yeah. time. And yeah. death specifically. Oh, uh-huh. That this was, I I might I like I I I screamed into our group chat that just like my boy death has shown up here. Mm-hmm. It's such it's, a good. It's passage. not even that it's death. It's well, death has the outsider point of view, so that really really works well as a quote from him. But this is what Discworld is about. Like, it's silly and it's kind of escapist, but also the whole reason we have this section is that it also says something real about the world. Mm-hmm. For me... Yeah, that, yeah, that's perfect. For me, the thing that got me was this whole thread about the land and country needing somebody who loves it. Um, that, like, by all accounts, Varence was not a great king. Um, but 
he did love the land and love the country and and that that the idea that that makes a difference that you know I think it's sort of the intentions aspect, but, you know, if you're ruling from a place where you truly love what you're ruling, it's going to be different from if you're just ruling for power's sake. Yeah, that leads into the thing that I pulled, which was the uh, granny meditating on power, which is... uh Things like crowns had a troublesome effect on clever folk. It was best to leave all the reigning to the kind of people whose eyebrows met in the middle when they tried to think. In a funny sort of way, they were much better at it. Basically, like, if you're too clever, you start, you know, starting wars and devising interesting torture devices and stuff. Like Mad Lord Snapcase. And Mad Lord Felmet. Duke. He never yeah, seems to get that's corny. that was one of the interesting things is that I I was almost expecting like when people referred to him as Duke for him to like throw a fit about that. But yeah, he never gets the crown, so he can't have a coronation. Oh. Oh, f- forgot about also you know magic sword and birthmark. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we do get a magic sword in the story, but it's a prop knife. This, this is a this secret book for later. Is a, yeah, it's a mm, yeah. It's really setting up yeah, some things. Yeah, it, it is. It's setting up. It's setting up rules. Mm-hmm. Chekhov's lore. So, what did we like about the book? God, can I just say, like, all of it? <laughs> yeah, I literally wrote in this section, sustained screaming. It's, this is honestly so like, good to I, hear. Every, because, you know, the the first so five much. were, because this is number six, right? The first five were kind of uh, touch and go a little bit. And especially after sorcery, I was I was very concerned about this project. Well, no, no, it's just that Sorcery is a wizard's book, and all the wizard's books have been a struggle for me. Uh, I liked Equal Rights. Loved yeah. Mort. It's just that we're really stacked on sor- on wizard's books in the beginning. Yeah, I mean, there are definitely some things that in this book that bothered me, which we'll touch on yeah. later. Yeah, uh, same. But they're minor compared to, well, they are problems, but they're they're minor compared to overall. It's a very good book with a lot of. I would almost describe a decent chunk of it as feminist. I think it's really lovely that we get these three women at the center of this who get to be fucking complex and weird and have issues and be wrong and also carry the book. And the three of them are so different from one another. Mm-hmm. And honestly, this was just a fun book. It was a fun book to read. Like, that, you know, there's a lot of lore. Mm-hmm. It's There's a lot of it in there that's folded very carefully into the narrative rather than being tacked on with tangents or just the book being entirely lore. <coughs> Sorcery. But... You know, it it was fun to read. Like, you know, it just it's a page turner. There's like there's never a point where you feel like you are racing to set up a bit. 
but instead it's all flowing nicely. It's happening diegetically. Um, and it's just bits arise from the story. The story is not there for bits. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's never a point where you're like sunk down in the doldrums of like, oh, nothing's happening. I'm so bored right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the reveals the reveals feel earned. The plot turns feel earned. Mm-hmm. Boy, did um, anyone else call the fool thing? Because I totally called the fool thing and I was so excited when it started happening. <laughs> it started to like, oh, like when it was like, like as like they started dropping hints, it was like, oh, okay. They dropped, I think the moment i was like was the, in the alleyway well this is a shakespeare thing though i and correct me if i'm wrong minna but they met like it's laid out in like the very first segment when um granny has that speech about how you'd have to be born a fool to be a king Oh, I missed that one, but there is a later moment that. where he says, yeah. if you strike me, where the Duke says, if you strike me down, the person who took my place would have to be fool. And I was like, a fool, you say. And there's also the, you know, <laughs> there's also the double joke um, with the, the fool's actual parentage um, of like the Mary, I'm uh-huh. not, I am not your nuncle. Correct me if I'm wrong on this, but that that's like a Shakespeare thing to lay out to lay out the twist at the very start in a way that's not recognizable unless you have already know what the twist is. That's not one that I know of, but I would believe it that if you went back and showed me examples that that was true. Yeah, I think that there's I think that there's a few examples. I'm I'm trying to remember that, but but that's definitely that's definitely a like literary thing of It's definitely an extremely good thing and a very honestly a very pratchett thing he loves his checkouts guns and his setting stuff up earlier as a joke that turns out to be completely serious yeah i know it involves the phrase if you strike me down now because my first i did two jokes in the footnote <laughs> one of them was <laughs> completing the star wars quote and the second one was a fool you say <laughs> trying to find numbers and i'm not seeing them it's okay it's not very important if you thread it you understand the bit i'm talking about Probably. I, I also loved Granny's little "When you break rules, break them good and hard." Oh, yeah, so good. I love that. The, in for a penny, in for a pound, right? Oh, gr- Granny has a really good inner dialogue, or it's a narration about anger. Yes, yeah. I just passed gonna, that in my notes where I said, "I just want to read it because Granny. it's very good." Um, <laughs> Granny Weatherwax was often angry. She considered it one of her strong points. Genuine anger was one of the world's great creative forces, but you had to learn mm-hmm. to control it. That didn't mean you let it trickle away. It meant you damned it carefully, let it develop a working head, let it drown whole valleys of the mind, and then, just when the whole structure was about to collapse, open a tiny pipeline at the base, let the iron-hard stream of wrath power the turbines of revenge. I love it! And that is a witch! Mm-hmm. That that's Granny right there. Yeah, that may be specifically Granny. <laughs> uh, and you know, this is this but is funny because you know, my mind with that is jumping to the fact that I watched the Mister Rogers biopic thing with Tom Hanks, which is very good. Um, but the you know, the what do you do with the mad that you feel? <laughs> I don't think that Mister Rogers would approve of <laughs> Granny. <laughs> I mean, he wouldn't approve of Granny 
probably, but she's still yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> she's not always good, but she's good. <laughs> I think Granny would approve of Mr. Rogers, though. Yes, I think I think she would. Uh, I also want to. I also want to like do a thing for like something that I really love is that Granny stabs a dude with a hat pin. Oh yeah. Yes. And and I love and hat that. Pins. And like as as somebody who like the historical context of hat pins specifically, I delighted in yeah. that. Yeah, because they they were for stabbing, or pe- people did yeah. stab with yeah. them. One of my favorite things was that we actually got to see Headology not work a few times. Um, specifically, you know, that, that you know, Granny tries it on that one soldier and it doesn't work at the beginning. And then she, she also you know, does that spell and shows the Duchess who the Duchess really is. And she's just not phased at all. Like the Duchess knows exactly who she is with every like murderous selfish murderous selfish facet. And it's just like, no, I'm I'm fine with this. You you can't scare me with this. I, that was such an interesting moment too. Because the Duchess is living in a different world or looking at the world in a different way than most people in that world. Because most of them do believe in a generally just and ordered world. And that is what Granny is uh, relying on here. But the Duchess does not believe in that. She believes that the world is full of horrible... She is uh, the platonic ideal of a Machiavellian villain. (laughs) Oh, Minna. Um, I seem to recall that you know, we've been talking about Shakespeare a lot. I seem to recall you had some opinions about this as specifically a Macbeth re- reference. Yes. I think that actually comes up in a later section, but I am fine to do it now. <laughs> oh, we can, we can wait. Um, where, where are we even in, in the outline? Are we in broadly what did you like about the book? Yeah. What's your favorite yeah. passage? Uh, roughly we that train, we yeah. Yeah, well, we can, we can, We're come, enjoying we can cover ourselves. that later. There are I just a lot of... wanted to make sure it wasn't forgotten. Yeah, no, but absolutely, I will come to yeah. that. Uh, prepares my fucking TED Talk. <laughs> except it won't be as organized as a TED Talk. <laughs> uh, I also I also um, loved the ghosts. Like, not just Varence. It was fun. But all of the ghosts. Like, we have the, like, um you know, kind of proto-humanoid ghost um, who's just there because the castle happened to be built on wherever they were living. Mm-hmm. And, like, God... The the mounds that he's yeah. buried in, which is such an interesting uh, callback to how shit actually happens in the world. Yeah. And I, I thought the ghosts were really a good part. Was there a shining reference yes. in there with the dead there twins? There are dead twins. Honestly, I thought it might okay. be like the kids in the tower reference. Like the whichever oh, evil yeah. King Richard supposedly killed children in a tower. I don't know. Richard the Third? I, I think know. so. I think it's Richard the Third. That makes sense. Oh, I bet it is Richard uh, the Third because <laughs> yeah. Shakespeare. Yeah, it is Richard the Third. I've seen that one. But I mean, the creepy dead twins is also just like a trope. No, it is also the shining. <laughs> Speaking of things in the castle and things that were loved, 
I want to take I want to take a, a little bit a uh, uh, thing a uh, shout out here for the worst cat ever. Oh uh, God! Slash the best cat, Grebo, <laughs> who is not so much a cat as a primordial feline devil. <laughs> oh, Aaron, Aaron, wrong. do you remember the bit? The bit that we're going to get to in in the future. I think so. There's there's going to be a really good bit with Grebo. Let me just, just tell you that. It's going to be a personal attack, yeah, Justin. Good. So, um, yeah. Um, I don't think we've described this cat in the, in the, in the, the episode yet. Grebo is just a fucking monster cat. It's a horrible, horrible thing. Um, honestly, it fulfilled, like... This, this confirms so far that... Most of the time for me to, like, the main thing I will enjoy out of a Discworld book is, one, the luggage, two, death, three, I will accept any other omnicidal monster. <laughs> and Grebo certainly is that. I I would love to see a Grebo versus the luggage cage match. I I have, I have in our shipping corner. <laughs> uh, that we will have to, um... I just, I don't even need them to fight or anything. I just want the, I just want Grebo and the luggage to write that fanfic. I have shipping corner material, but I also just have a lot of, I desire Diana Wynne Jones crossovers with this book specifically. (laughs) I've already mentioned one of them. I would also like Grebo to meet some of the cats from like the Crestomancy series, which are all awful and wonderful. Also, the land, so cool and I love, this is so silly, but I love the disc theater. I love it. Oh my god, I love that. (laughs) Just the globe for Discworld. I need it to exist forever. It's a Shakespeare meta reference. I know. I love, okay. (laughs) I just do genuinely love that Vitaler's company is entirely like riffing off of them being basically Shakespeare's company. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And and Justin was death on the stage a personal attack against you? It was so good. I'm like, <laughs> oh, you poor baby, your your lines. I also loved the tweak to the the rule about him not being able to be seen except by yes. wizards and cats. Yeah. You know, the the quote death was seldom seen. The reason that no one else saw him was that the human brain is clever enough to edit sights too horrible for it to cope with. But the problem here was that several hundred people were in fact expecting to see death at this point and were therefore <laughs> seeing him. I, so I love good. that even before Pratchett comes out and says that you can kind of feel oh that's what's happening because they're expecting it. It's extremely I'm good. So excited. So, what do we think is set up particularly well in this book? I personally love Nanny Og, like, and the mm-hmm. and the dynamic between the witches that they're all unique, um, and it's it's really interesting because we have the set of female characters who are neither friends nor enemies or or rivals. You know, it's it's interesting to see because you know, they're they're not buddy buddy. It's not like you know, Sex in the City. They're all you know getting drinks or whatever. Like, nor are they you know fighting with each other. They're just sort of like pleasantly neutral in this weird way. And I think it's a really interesting and fairly unique dynamic. And I think that that's where 
you know, where we were saying that there's some of the like feminism, I think that that's where that comes in, in part, is that we've got these unique female characters who are all different from each other, but who also don't fall into a lot of the like interaction tropes that we see often. Um, I also love Nanny's complete earthiness. Like it's, it's very refreshing. Um, we're used to these sort of grandmother characters being like, you know, very prudish and like, and no, she is like all about fucking. (laughs) And, you know, like that, you know, the body bodily pleasures and like she she is all about that. And it's a lot of fun, really. It's very good. And it's not played like in a weird way either. It's like, no, this is just how she is and that's fine. Yeah, it's it's not sexualized. Like that there's lots of sex references, but it's not sexualized. I think this is a little bit of what I was you know, what bothered me a little bit in sorcery as well, is that you know, sorcery is one of the few books where there's stuff that is sexualized because the rich, the witches' books have so many sex references, but they're not racy. It's very interesting. Yeah, they're just allowed to be. Yeah. And Nanny Og in particular is allowed to be just fully human, and that's fine. <laughs> I will, I'll, 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 sec- I'll second the, the bit on just like, just. The witches' interactions in this book are so good. Like, I, I just, I love, I, I like, I think it's like the the depth of all of our three main protagonists is just so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I also love, especially how, you know, considering the, the origins of the wise older woman slash witch thing being really rooted in, you know, midwives and people and women who knew what they were doing around childbirth and health and stuff like having that really sort of laid out on the page, I think is very important and valuable, you know, because and, and Nanny Ogg's comfort and familiarity with, basic biological functions of humans comes from lots of experience, both her own and helping lots and lots of other people. So she doesn't see it as something, you know, like the wizards fear it and uh, whether or not we buy the sorcery thing, you know, um, but like she's, it's just part of life and part of death. It's just also funny because while granny is also a midwife, who is very comfortable with like the bringing people into the world and helping people leave the world part. She's also very uncomfortable with sex and with especially witches who have it. And it leads to like probably kind of a nasty moment with Nanny Og where they're like, well, you're weird because you don't have sex. You're weird because you do have sex. But also I just want to claim Nanny as my own or Granny. I want to claim Granny as my own because whatever. <laughs> I just get attached to characters who are with McGrath, you know, discovering her sexuality in mm-hmm. the middle of it, and the Hedgehog doesn't get buggered <laughs> at all. Apparently. God, we we were Nanny not treated to the Wizard's staff has a knob on the end, though. 
we weren't really treated to the hedgehog never gets buggered at all just like references to what the lyrics talk about well it's it's just enough to to spark the imagination Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm yeah i don't think i want to actually hear the song no no i'm gonna be in the no it's it's better in, in reference i'm somewhere between mcgrat and granny in terms of sexuality. <laughs> McGrath is the uh, possibly willful innocent. <laughs> Granny is just like, don't want this. Speaking of, though, God, Terry, stop describing yeah. McGrath's body. Like, stop. It happens like five or six times. and it, After the second time, I was like, stop, just don't. I feel like this is just a. I feel like this is just a thing with Terry, and I'm interested to see if it'll ever let up. But it's just like he fixates on like one character per book. Yeah, that's my that's my one thing in this book that I'm just like, don't. Yeah, there were actually a few other things that like, you know, where I looked at it, I was like, mm, why? Um, there was the there's that line about like Grebo being a multiple rapist that was mm. mm-hmm. uh, and the the whole thing where Magret is in the castle with the guards and there's like a very clear implication of like you know that it, she's risking being sexually assaulted there is mm. not yeah, yeah that. That could go in the bin. It, adding to that collection of kind of rape jokes, the ongoing bit about the Rot Seigneur, especially where it clearly was actually about the king getting to have sex with people on their wedding nights. Mm, yeah, I could have done without that. The part where they thought it was a... Where they thought it was a dog was good, but I think it would have been better if it hadn't actually been a thing at all, because it was not a thing. It's like a random literary convention, misconception, urban myth thing. So if that had actually been the case within the world of Discworld, that would have been quite a funny bit. But it's kind of clear in the text that it actually was a thing. And then I'm like, I wish it wasn't. I felt like it waffled around between whether it was a thing or not, because th- yeah. there's only... The only thing where it implies that it was actually a thing was the granny's line about, um, well, Nanny has that line of like, you know, plenty of young couples got their, you know, got their start out in life right that way. And Mm -hmm. granny has the line of plenty of people too. And well... There's also a bit, I think later when they're establishing the fool's parentage, too. No, well. There's some mention of exercising his draw to senior, so while he's away doing that or whatever. But I, it, that it one, could go either way. I just. Yeah, I felt like weird. that one still could fit into the, like, you know, he was out, like, exercising his large dog. Yeah. You know, out, out hunting. Um, mm-hmm. It's. It, I felt like it was it's a little inconsistent. It, we could have done without it. It wasn't as old and disproved a joke in 1988, probably. Yeah, the old and overused in... It was probably less overused in 88. 
Yeah. I there's also the thing where it sets up an interesting the interesting bit of the the flipped actual parentage that you're you're expecting yeah. there to be like this host of royal bastards out there who mm-hmm. could be taking the throne and the person who ends up on the throne is in fact the court jester's son who you know mm-hmm. was not a bastard and and the person who they thought was you know the rightful heir was in fact the court jester's bastard it's it's a weird mm-hmm. it's, a, it's this weird it's like very, play on parentage it's interesting i feel like that could have done with some like at least some solid editing this is the bit where my ted talk comes in if you want it oh yes <laughs> please please go so while I feel this book is actually like really does really cool stuff with like Shakespeare and like parody on Shakespeare drama and how those plays happened, I think the actual Macbeth parody is pretty weak, especially the bits focused on the Macbeth and Lady Macbeth figures, like Duke and Duchess Felmet, um, Duke and Lady Felmet. I forget how you do her title. Anyway, uh, don't. There's a couple things that I think weaken it, and they kind of rely on, like, weak stereotypes around these characters. Um, the madness tropes with Duke Felmid are really not great. I don't... I wish we could stop relying on that. Um, uh, I'm not the best place to speak about that, but just it doesn't hold up particularly well to me. Because um, it, it's kind of, like, played in a silly way in a lot of the places where it is. And then there's the gender dynamics. And so Macbeth and Lady Macbeth do kind of have an interesting gender dynamic thing going on where, like, you get Lady Macbeth haranguing Macbeth because he is infirm of purpose and not manning up and just doing the killing he needs to do. And then she's like, unsex me now. So, you know, there's a thing, there's a, there's, there's a dynamic where the gender roles are almost flipped in a way, and that can be quite interesting in in the play, but it gets really watered down and made kind of not great in the end in this. There's it's it's always in like little moments, but it just kind of like put my teeth on edge. Um Lady Felmet, there is a scene where throughout the scene, she rubs her chin and it rasps a bit. And I'm like, can we not do the transphobic joke, maybe? Uh, And then there's also bits where, like, Duke Felmet almost gets infantilized. And then you start being embarrassed for him. And it's like, but that's not the point of Macbeth's quote-unquote madness and... I, it's not that I want it to be a perfect adaptation, it's that the way that it is adapted in here is not particularly great for me. Anyway. <laughs> I thought it would be more articulate when I did it, but it is not. I feel like the Hamlet, the Hamlet adaptation is better. There's a Hamlet adaptation? Or, like, I feel like the parts of did this that are, like, with the ghosts and stuff, oh. you know. But that's a little bit... That is kind of Hamlet-y, and that is... And yeah, play. no. The play's the thing. We're, we'll catch the conscience of the king. I kept thinking that the whole book log. Yeah. I feel like the... 
even at the on the surface we have the Macbeth and then mm-hmm. running underneath there's the Hamlet and I feel like the Hamlet is the strong one and Macbeth was by far the weak one. Well, yeah, and like the the Hamlet stuff isn't even limited to Hamlet like the supernaturally everything being weird does happen in Hamlet but it could be any tragedy really where you've got the person who is in power is in power wrongfully and has done some or has done something very wrong and the only way to f- like there's no good way to fix it because they're they're the authority that you would have that would dispense justice and they're unjust but yeah i thought i think that's a good point that those bits carry through better than i think Macbeth bits do, those kind of feel like they do a disservice to the source material. Fair. They kind of feel like a bad a bad comedy sketches version of what Macbeth is. If that makes sense. Yeah. At the same time, I, I with the madness, that's something I definitely want to touch on because I agree with you that for the most part that was not great. There's one line, though, that I think I think we're going to kind of see this concept again, but better executed, where it's a it's a line from the fool or it's part of the fool's monologue, internal monologue that the that at the heart of the Duke's madness, there is this like, you know, compacted Mm -hmm. diamond um, where where like the the madness has, had been transformed into something entirely else, and there is this like crystal clarity at the heart. Um, that's an interesting thing. That was quite interesting, and I think if they'd played more on that, and honestly, if they'd played more on the Duke trying to spin the narrative. Because we have so many people who have these different worldviews and how that can affect the world. If he had actually believed the story he was telling, I think it would have been a much stronger, like, believed the story he was telling. And then, like, maybe the madness was, like, the world trying to tell him, no, that's not the right thing. Like, that could have been a stronger thing for me. Yeah. The thing where he's just kind of, like, going into this silly version of insanity was not working for me. Yeah. But the the concept of the madness that's been you know formed and hardened so far that it looks like sanity that's definitely a terry thing yeah i think it's the way i make that work for me is by not treating madness necessarily as like a comedic take on insanity so much as like this is the way that the person is completely out of step with what is actually happening yeah well and i think um i think aaron where where i am specifically thinking about that coming back is hogfather i mean it's it's in several books oh yeah but definitely in hogfather that comes back yeah Um, definitely in hogfather in I mean, it's probably in guards. I I can think of several places where we're going to see this this concept again. So also also in the line of the like things we wish had been done differently, perhaps, and especially along the lines of the Duke. So this isn't necessarily a thing that I 
had per se wish was done differently other than the madness itself being kind of iffy. Um, but for the listeners, if you have issues with reading about hand injuries, mm. um, there's or self injury, there's frankly. definitely going to be some passages you're going to want to skim, um, slash skip. Um, yeah. Or if you have issues with self harm. Yeah. Yeah. He takes the out, out damn spot thing, um, to an extreme. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it gets, it gets pretty, pretty squishy. Upsetting. Yeah. It's all like vague references, but vague references done in a way that you're like, I wish my brain did not have the capacity to imagine right now. Yeah. It's the type of vague reference that our brains are very good at filling in. Mm-hmm. The other thing mm-hmm. that yeah. I wasn't a huge fan of was the whole thing with Magrat playing hard to get. Um, it's a trope yeah. that's overdone and one that I specifically but I feel hate. like she was doing it because she she was doing it because she thought that's what she was supposed to be doing. Yeah, that's that's. I think that's fair. The, that's the point of it. Yeah, it was that. This is a trope that was old in Austin's day, though. Yeah, it doesn't stop me from hating the trope. <laughs> that's fair. Um, like I, I understand why it's there that especially with Magrat being kind of torn between, you know, there's the, there's the nanny Og on her shoulder being like, get it girl. And then there's the granny Weatherwax on her other shoulder being like, harumph. Um, but it feels like she, it doesn't even feel like that's the thing. It feels like she's playing through a role that she doesn't even really believe in. And mm-hmm. doesn't know why that's the role she's playing through, but she is. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's even lampshaded at the end where they're like, oh, it looks like you haven't washed your hair for, you know, a month. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then it makes her cry because... Hmm. But those are uh, kernels of things we didn't like in a book that is overall pretty good. Yeah. Well, and uh, where would we... Where would we be if we weren't providing a round, well-rounded critique, right? Yeah. yeah, I'm sure there's more that could be dug into that we're not catching. Speaking of things we did like, I I really like that we're getting back or we're, we're starting to see we have enough content here that we can see actual references. Mm-hmm. Um, like the librarian yeah, we can comes start back. to do callbacks instead of call forwards. <laughs> the librarian, I get so excited every time he shows up. He just, like, shows up in a scene in a book, and I'm like, yes! Yeah, he's good. Uh. <laughs> is, is the librarian chaotic good? The librarian is just chaotic. Yeah. The librarian is chaotic good, yes. Uh, my favorite little reference in there was somebody comments that trees talk to you in scund. And please recall that I believe it was Light Fantastic. Rincewind was in scund. And the trees talked to him. Oh, that's true, yeah. And he was like, this is not happening. Trees do not talk. I want to get out of here right now. But it's acknowledged as a thing. Yeah, I mean, there's so much in this book that come that either is from, from stuff before or comes back later with a vengeance. Um, two things that I think we see that are like fleshed out for the first time here that are going to be like, that I know are going to be called forward because I have looked at the <laughs> names of books and had people react to it um, is 
one, our, our full description uh, in, in two paragraphs of how the guild system works. And um, we also, I think, get our first description of what Hogswash is. Did we? I missed that. Yeah, you're right. Um, yeah. yeah. Like, it's the it's the one night that witches go to bed early and stay in their beds. Oh, no yeah, happens. yeah, yeah. I think I was making, mixing that up with Soul Cake Day, but Soul Cake Day wouldn't even be that any... Never mind. Uh, also very neat that it's called Soul Cake Day. <laughs> it's just a reference to the English mythology area that this is living in. But that's a separate holiday that I'm getting mixed up. <laughs> I, I'm enjoying that it's like, I can at least like pick up like, oh, that's going to be a thing later on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the 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 official establishment of, of Second Sight, like, because some of the books that I've most recently read before starting this was, was the Tiffany Aching books, because I'd, for some reason, not read those. Uh, the Second Sight is so critically important. Uh, to to how he eventually ends up making witches distinct entities. Yeah. Similarly, the the um, you know may you live in interesting times thing uh, with guardsman Sean just wanting to be bored instead of dealing with all the excitement. Yeah. <laughs> and finally, um, Justin, shut your ears. Uh, you don't really have to, but um, soul music? Question mark? Question mark? Oh yeah, yeah. So my my favorite kind of proto thing that we'll come back to is that we have we have this like proto dibbler or dibbler alike <laughs> selling selling sausages yeah. in a bun With sausage in a bun the, the opportunistic salesman yeah yep well the thing i like with that is that it or the thing that's interesting with that is that it evokes that that always hovering specter of like basically rioting and popular violence that is like so much a part of these books especially with the city but even in Lancre, i guess yeah yeah also just death death being there death uh being into a human thing in terms of being curious about the theater and also the the moment on the stage where he's like oh they can see me because they expect to see me all very good callbacks to what we know and death death having stage right (laughs) Mm-hmm. So, that so was good. adorable. With witches, okay, I love the witches in general. I think, and I think I brought this up a little bit with like how they contrast with witches who are wizards who are outside the world. But I just think it's really important to me that the witches are just—they're not just—they're embedded in their communities, but they're not just embedded. They're like integral parts of their community. Like, I think if you took a witch out of the community that's used to having a witch. Things would go wrong and bad very quickly, and they would be lost and not even quite realize why and not be able to fill that space. And I love that. You don't know And it's know interesting how right the ways are. it kind of plays out. I'm so excited. Does that come up in a book? I want that book. It, okay. It, I was the hoping. The tie to the communities and their land is fundamental to how he ends up with witches. Mm-hmm. Because the witches are still not quite in their final form. But even like where they are now, it's like, these are clearly extremely important community members. I mean, you don't even really have... You have priests in Discworld, but you don't have, like, priests in Discworld who are, like, pillars of their community. Witches are pillars of their community without being quite, like, 
in the thick of it. Uh, and I think that's really neat. And also, I love the way that it plays out here, like where Nanny Og will be like, oh, I, I delivered this person. And <laughs> um, like you kind of use her status in the community as a way to like get at people, which is also great. <laughs> I brought yeah. you into this world. Like, I God. think that's how she gets past yeah, the guards. I brought you into this world and guards. I'll take you out of it too. Yeah, I love it. It's beautiful. For the for the roles of witches, there's a there's a thing that I I, I remember I remember learning about once, and this is this is a very basic understanding of it, but that you have like task leaders and you have social leaders in like any group, and like task leaders are people who are like, I'm going to organize something, I'm going to be the what we would consider like a de facto leader, like a mayor or mm-hmm. a king perhaps or like a cap a captain um whereas like a social leader is somebody who like sort of ma- like helps manage the community and deals with problems like deals with people and problems and mm-hmm. it feels like witches are much they're... more sort of the social leader well, yeah and like they're like i just we saw bits of it in Equal Rights, too, when we saw Granny in, in Badass. Just, like, the way that they... Just, like, little informal problems that you don't take to anybody else. That's who you take it to, and they solve it. <laughs> I think that that's actually an interesting thing ab- about this book, um, too, in that you know, I feel like the, the division of, like, you know, what type of leader is a witch and what type of leader is a king... I think what we talked about was at least a little bit like we, we've we've sort of covered over the base of this conversation, but like just through like we've gone through like six books now, and I think Terry writes couples very like like just how he writes couples so far is that typically they are somewhat non traditional, um, or at least he tries to mess with some sort of dynamic. This is the thing that you are free to spoil me on, but so far we have only seen pretty heterosexual couples here in this world and i i do we get non hetero do we get any queer relationships in the series is that an actual question that is an actual question you do not have to give me examples i'm just like is this a thing that is going okay um so i'm gonna be i'm very interested to see how at least one book yeah you thinking of monsters Um, regiment yeah Mm -hmm. okay um uh, they they are the minority. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, that that's that's expected. Um, I'm a queer dude. I take what I can get uh, out of popular literature. Um, <laughs> um, there's there's definitely more as we get on from like 1988. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a book in the 80s. I'm. I'm. Yeah. It's there. There are some things that I'm like. Oh, hey, these books don't age well. They might have been like they they might have been considered daring or what or like progressive at the time we have a certain sliding scale that might not like that it lets us have some more like changes how we're viewing this in 2020 um but it's like at least for how heterosexual couples are written in this world so far we generally tend to get at least one person who is in the couple who is sort of like makes the dynamic weird or interesting. Um, but like for the, particularly with um, like, I'm not a huge fan of the Duke and the, the Duchess because we're 
playing off the Shakespeare thing, and I, I sort of just want to loop back onto that, is like, Shakespeare, it, like, Shakespeare, or it, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are the two main characters in their play. And it is a tragedy, and so they're, they're like, it is focused on their downfall. And I think if you, it's obviously, you're taking, like, you're taking that out of context, sort of, and you're putting it into a comedy, and you're making them the antagonists and lesser characters. They're not the main spotlight characters. So I think it, like, that doesn't help that, like, it makes it much more simple and basic. Um, I do find it, like, we, we do get, like, Nanny Og, who I think in text is stated to have had at least three husbands. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Which which I think is I think is really cool of just like that like that it's stated as a casual fact that it's not scandals or anything. It's like no, she's either outlived them or outlived their usefulness. Yeah. Um outlived them or worn them out. <laughs> um but yeah, it's like so far it's like this is a very interesting thing of like um, I think I think it's like the the fool and Margaret are like an interesting romance, like they're they're at least more interesting than like what we get in sorcery or um, Cohen and I cannot remember her name because names uh, in Light Fantastic. Mm. It was Welsh. Like I think that they're actually like good. They're not they're not Mort good. Um, but then again, Mort is this like shining beacon of like. Where it's like here, here is this entire thing where I will write where I will write headfic for. Um, I that's my that's my main thing. It's like I, I'm I'm sort of rambling on this, but it's just like so far I find the way he writes couples interesting and not always great. So I'm interested to see how that changes. Yeah, this will definitely be interesting to circle back on. I can't wait for you to meet uh, Vimes and Sybil. I don't know. I think I would say that romance is one of Pratchett's weaker points, particularly in like building it up. Like once it's once people are together and established, I think that they can work together in quite a fun way. It's just the making it happen that always feels kind of weak to me. Yeah, I'd agree with that. But uh, on that note, do we want to go to Justin and Minna's shipping corner? Yes, let's. We got some several things, right? Yeah, this this is a good book for it. I mean, at least there's a couple things that we can talk about. Let's talk about Margaret and the Fool, or uh, as we reveal, Varens. Um, I think they're a delight. Like, like there, there's like there's some maybe cliches of like, oh, I've I've got to, I've like she she wants to do this performative thing of either like trying to keep her witchy distance or just like because she thinks it's what it is. She's playing that hard to get thing. But I think it's actually like they're like once they get past that, they're very interesting because they are two people who um are sort of like at opposite ends of their spectrum. Because um Margaret is like all she wants to do is she wants to be a witch. And she likes being a witch. She thinks that being a witch is great. And she wants to performatively be the be the most witchy witch she can be, or at least from what she's read in books. And for the fool, he is a fool. He is going to be a fool, 
but he doesn't particularly enjoy being a fool. And was sort of just pushed into it by the family trade. Was miserable about it and is stuck in this because it's what's expected of him. But he is still going to be a fool. Um, Do you so think it's like, that I their think relationship, it kind of plays on the, like, thing that Granny says towards the end where it's like, yeah, we believe in destiny, but it's not because destiny is what's going to happen. It's because you have to be careful what you make of destiny. And it's, like, interesting that they're on different, like, where McGrath's just fully embracing what she believes to be her destiny and the fool is like, this is my destiny and it sucks. Yeah, and and I think that ties back to, again, what I picked out as one of the main themes of identity and, like, who you are at your core. I do like the fact that once, when the fool's destiny changes and he becomes the king, like, it it sucks and Magrat is going through a lot of, like, turmoil because of it, but it's interesting that he kind of takes, he kind of has to take some time away to figure himself out, and then... He comes to McGrath's and he's like, okay, I'm here and I'm ready. And I am being me and not necessarily the fool or the king. It's very good and very pure. I think maybe with a perhaps lesser author, um, we might have gotten some half-baked proposal or something of like, be my queen. It's like, oh no, I can't be a queen, I'm a witch. I like that he comes to her cottage. Yeah, no, that is great. All he needs is a boombox. And it's like, and he sends the guards away and he just kind of like sits by the fire and falls asleep, which is like the ultimate vulnerability. And it's like, yeah, he's stripping off all the all the facades and he's just being him. It's really yeah. good. And I think that's also something that's like, you know, I think part of that is also you know, him kind of taking taking some time to, like... I think that there's a side thing with the fool, Varence, of you know, that he's got quite a bit of trauma from mm-hmm. his training, etc. And, you know, kind of working through who he is and, and not expecting to have Magrat do that emotional labor for him. I thought was something good that he's kind of centered himself and then come to her rather than Mm -hmm. like having this big, huge change thrust upon him and then coming to her and being like, center me. And if he is coming to her like center, not like you need to center me, but like it feels like when he comes to her, it's because he can rest there, which is nice. Yeah. And I'm always happy about that so i also have a ship yes let's talk about that if we're done with uh full magrat <laughs> unless you want to yes. do we did kind of touch we, on we did touch on this before. but i need to say it again of like i want to watch grievo and the luggage just murder something together or fight each other <laughs> i honestly don't care i just want them to interact as they're like they're non-verbal horrible omnicidal jackasses <laughs> I do like this is like this is my thing where it's like 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 I don't I don't like stand villains a lot. But when I do it's because they're utter garbage creatures. And I'm like, yes, I recognize <laughs> that Grebo's a monster and this horrible, horrible beast. 
But I, I sort of kind of just like, Kitty. Murder Kitty. <laughs> yes. It also showed the that scene in the when the fool rescues Grebo that the fool is not, in fact, a fool. Mm-hmm. Yep. He wore chain mail. Which which got him some grudging respect from Greedo, which was great. Also, I love how all of us have stumbled over at our brains attempting to say Greedo instead. Yes. Oh, my God. The whole time. Every single one of us. You know what I say to that? I say McClunky. <laughs> no! Podcast listeners, Justin said that and then dabbed. So you have a you have a ship there, Minna? I also have a ship. And I I didn't expect to come out of this shipping it, but I kind of do. And it's Nanny Og slash Granny Weatherwax, which I think is an existing ship. Like I don't think I'm alone in this. But there were just like really cute tender moments with them that I enjoyed. For example, when Nanny Og saved Granny Weatherwax, like Granny's broom died midair. And then Granny Weatherwax is like, don't you ever do that again, <laughs> Geetha Og. Uh, I'm weak for uh, Granny calling Nanny Og Geetha, it turns out. Uh, there's also a moment during the play when Granny holds out her hand and says, come, Geetha. And uh, she gently took Nanny Og's hand. Come, Geetha, she said. And they just have all this shared history, and they're, like, such different people, and, like, they do have that fight where they're uh, mutually shaming each other for their sexual habits, but it kind of feels like everything else outweighs that, if that makes sense. I don't know. I, I, I feel like they regretted that instantly, basically. Yeah, like... That doesn't feel like a thing that they really meant so much as it was like, oh, these are weapons that we can use right here. Which is yeah, and great, but yeah, that that interaction definitely felt like they both said that and then like were honestly ashamed of themselves for saying it. Because like I don't think either of them like genuinely has. I mean, Granny might slightly have issues with Nanny Og's choices, but that's just because she has issues with her own choices. <laughs> and it doesn't. I don't know. It doesn't have to be like a romantic ship necessarily. I just think that they have known each other for so long and been like friends slash partners slash rivals slash whatever just for so long that it's like become a central relationship, even if they didn't mean it to be. Yeah, they're just they're just gals being pals. I'll see myself out. Do we want to rate this book? Yeah. I, I give this book 1,137 out of 1,184 extremely angry wildlife denizens. Do the math. Similarly in the do the math camp, I'm going to give it 370 out of 383 jokes that are officially sanctioned by the Fool's Guild. I'm going to give it 8.5 out of 10 forgotten lines. <laughs> and I'm going to give it 13 out of 15 lost years by my calculations. Now I believe we have come to the point where since I have given this book a rating, <laughs> I am now allowed to look at the next book. Yes! Yes. So I'm typing Pyramids Terry Pratchett into uh, Kindle Store. Oh. Oh, you Amazon. So, mm -hmm. first book that obviously comes up is Pyramids. 
The second result, however, is guards! <laughs> what the fuck? It's teasing you! It's only one more book. Fucking algorithm. You can't read that one yet. So I'm not clicking on guards. Clicking on pyramids. Um, oh no, there's going to be <gasps> words here that I'm going to apologize for people from Egypt. Sorry, okay. I'm reading the summary for the first time also. <laughs> so, uh, first a little bit of history. Uh, it is the seventh book of our series, so that means that we are now... So now that we are finished 6 out of 241, we are 14% of the way through Discworld. Um, it was originally released in... 1989. Okay. Uh, it won the BFSA Awards in 1989 as well. Oh, I don't know what that is. British fi- fantasy science fiction, probably. Anywho, let's read the back cover. Uh, Pyramids is the seventh book in the world award-winning comic fantasy Discworld series by Terry Pratchett. In Pyramids, you'll discover the tale of Tepic, a student at the Assassin's Guild of Ankh-Morpork and Prince of the Tiny Kingdom of Jilla-Baby. Uh, yes, it is Jilla-Baby! Jilla-Baby! It's Jelly Baby! Uh, sorry, I just died a little bit. Thrust him to the role of a pharaoh after his father's sudden death. It's bad enough being new on the job, but Tepic hasn't, ha- hasn't a clue as to what a pharaoh is supposed to do. First, there's a monumental task of building a suitable resting place for Dad, a pyramid to end all pyramids. Then there are the myriad administrative duties, such as dealing with bad priests, sacred crocodiles, and marching mummies. And to top it all off, the adolescent feral discovers deceit, betrayal, not to mention a headstrong handman at the heart of his realm. Sometimes being a god is no fun at all. So, so the subtitle of this next episode is, Hi Tepic, would you like a jelly baby? The Complete Discography is an independent production by four people who just really like these books. All opinions expressed during the show are our own. All quotes from primary or related works are used under the Fair Use Doctrine and remain copyrighted by their original owners. The music for this podcast is sourced from Incompetech. The intro music is Take a Chance. The outro is Fuzzball Parade. Both are by Kevin McLeod, and both are used under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution license. The rest of it is distributed under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it. Please share it. But say where you got it, don't make money off it, and don't change it. Connect with the show on Twitter at AtuinPod, which is A-T-U-I-N underscore P-O-D, or email us at atuin.pod at gmail.com.
What's that he wishes? My cousin Westmoreland? No, my fair cousin. If we are marked to die, we are enough to do our country loss, and if to live the fewer men the greater share of honor. God's will. I pray thee, wish not one man more. By Jove, I am not covetous for gold, nor care I who doth feed upon my cost. It yearns me, not if my men my garments wear. Such outward things dwell not in my desires. But if it be a sin to covet honor, I am the most offending soul alive. No faith, my cuz, wish not a man from England. God's peace, I would not lose so great an honor as one man more methinks would share from me for the best hope I have. Oh, do not wish one more. Rather proclaim it, Westmoreland, through my host, that which he hath no stomach to his fight. Let him depart. His, hus his passport shall be made, and crowns for convoy put in his purse. We would not die in that man's company that fears his fellowship to die with us. This day is called the Feast of Crispian. He that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand tiptoe when this day is named and rouse him at the name of Crispin. He that shall live this day and see old age will yearly on this on the vigil feast his neighbors and say, Tomorrow is St. Crispin. And then he will strip his sleeve and show his scars and say, These wounds I had on Crispin's day. Old men forget, yet all shall be forgot, but he'll remember with advantages what feats he did that day. Then shall our names, familiar in his mouth as household words, Harry the King, Bedford and Exeter, Warlock, Warwick and Talbot, Salisbury and Gloucester, be in their flowing cups freshly remembered. This story shall good man teach his son, and Crispin Crispian shall never go by. From this day to the ending of the world, be we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Be he never so vile, this day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed they were not here, and hold their manhoods cheap, whilst any speaks that fought with us on St. Crispin's Day.